Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Throughout the episodes of this podcast, I've highlighted the importance of representation and how the downstream effects of increasing the diversity within uh, all areas of healthcare ultimately lead to improving clinical outcomes and very specifically helping to address healthcare inequity. This episode's guest is another concrete example of what good looks like in this particular sense. When we get into not only what her background is, and the opportunities for her to grow within the public health sector and noting the attention that she could have for her community in which she was raised, but also her adopted community, the importance of what it means from having that perspective, incorporating it into her, not only her education, but the output of her education and creating long-lasting trusted programs as a trusted leader that are helping to improve outcomes in multiple states and are examples of what can be done elsewhere truly reinforces why we spend the time discussing diversity, equity, inclusion, and healthcare, and the importance of understanding that everybody has an opportunity to contribute, but as importantly, everybody also has an opportunity to encourage this type of development. All right, welcome back to Crossing the Chasm. And for those who don't think who think that we ask people whether or not we should follow up with a guest or not, and then we we don't. This is our first guest where we heard from somebody, they made a recommendation, and we got them on as quickly as possible. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Vanessa Nicholson-Robinson to the podcast. For those who want a little bit of background um, with Vanessa, she is, uh, she's received multiple, multiple bachelor's degrees from Mississippi State University in both business administration as well as Spanish language and literature. Uh, she went on to receive her master's of public health at Jackson State University and then her doctorate of public health from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She currently serves in multiple roles, but her primary role is uh, as an assistant professor at Tufts University. Welcome, Vanessa. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Dr. Gray. Thank you. I um, When you reached out to me about uh, your initiative and this podcast, I was so enthusiastic about it. So it is uh, definitely an honor to be here. Well, thank you so much. So we jumped straight into things and we want our listeners to hear about your story. How did you end up doing what you're doing? Honestly, it was, um, I would love to tell you as an academic that it was this very formal process, but uh, I definitely think that my interest, in addition to me being an assistant professor, I'm also a health equity research scientist. And so that interest in health equity, it has come ever since I was a child. 
So my background, I'm from Mississippi. And when you are a person of color, when you're female uh, in a place like Mississippi, although it is very rich in tradition, it's beautiful, and I have no regrets about where I come from, you see a lot of inequities, right? As a child, you don't know to call them inequities, but I've always been interested in terms of um, cost, access, quality as related to healthcare and why certain groups have and certain groups don't have. And what were the, the distinguishing factors with that? And so one interest led to another. Um, I started off in public health like at the age of 19, started in HIV uh, AIDS research with my university at the time, Mississippi State. And then I just had like a random, well, once I got finished with Mississippi State, I went on to Jackson State uh, wanting to really understand how, like what major can I go into helping people? And then once I finished my master's, I went into doing my doctorate, but I didn't really have a plan on doing my doctorate. Keep in mind, I was like 22, 23 at the time. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, what school do I wanna go to? And then the University of Texas just popped up and I thought to myself, okay, where is that? Because as you know, uh, University of Texas has multiple campuses throughout Texas. And so the Premier School of Public Health was in uh, Houston. And keep in mind, like I said, I was 23 at the time. And so my thought process was Beyonce's from there. I like Beyonce. How about we go to <laughs> University of Texas? Literally, I mean, I would love to tell you that it was a formal process, but it really wasn't. But honestly, when I came to UT, it was like one of the best experiences of my life. Because at Jackson State, I was able to witness inequity in the, in the environment while at the same time pursuing my master's. But then when you or when I went to UT, there was a different tone to how um, public health, health disparities was delivered to the students. It was not delivered the same way as it was delivered to those of us at Jackson State, which I don't know if many of the listeners know, but Jackson State is a historically black university. And so there's a different tone in terms of how people experience healthcare, as well as how the delivery of um, various components of healthcare is received by students. So that was a good comparison for me to analyze, okay, wow, it really is a different experience based on where you are located geographically and where you are located or organizationally, I would say. That is terrific. Well, um, as somebody who we 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 shared the same ground, not at the same time, uh, uh -huh. but uh, we absolutely shared the ground, same ground. That's all right. You can um, uh, my adopted hometown. Uh, you're more than welcome to to be happy with it, and I'm glad it was wonderful time with you. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're a health equity researcher, um, and I think there's a pretty obvious connection between why is DEI important to you. But tell us a little bit about like how and why you entered that and, and maybe expand on why DEI is important to you in that particular lens. Well, I definitely say that the work, I was interested in the work that was presented before me. And then once I was exposed to the work that I was doing, then the themes of health equity, health inequity, health illiteracy, um, those things started to come out. And so I did not go into my field of expertise saying that I wanted to be a health equity research scientist. What happened was the work guided me. And then as I followed my passion in the work, then I said, oh, okay, there's a certain theme that's coming out of this. So for instance, as I mentioned, as a child, I was always interested in like who has, who has not, and then to what degree, and then why is this so? Um, fast forward, uh, through my education, I started to 
have a deeper understanding. And then I landed Tufts as a project manager in 2020. Uh, so as you all know, that was the height of COVID. And so at the time I was working at University of Houston, uh, but also I was like, okay, I want to do something more than just being an adjunct faculty at that particular point in time. I wanted to make sure that I did field research because I have a DRPH as opposed to a PhD. Um, and I will say, say this, the two disciplines, they depend on each other. So whereas a PhD is more theoretically based, uh, the DRPH, what I always say uh, to my students and to colleagues, the DRPH is the person who goes out into the field, tests the theory, and then explains why the theory worked or why the program worked, why didn't it work, and then how we how can we make uh, a program that is deemed to be successful more feasible. So once I allowed the work to guide me, I landed a position as a program manager at Tufts working um, in a uh, in a research lab known as Mother Lab. So Mother Lab is now one of the largest uh, research labs, virtual research labs in the nation that's dedicated to optimizing the maternal health outcomes for black women. And so that lab was started in July of 2020. I came onto the project uh, in October of 2020. And really I just was held with the responsibility of assisting the director with building the infrastructure of the lab. And so because it was a virtual lab, it was based in Tufts, but pretty much if you had an interest in maternal health and you had a passion for it and you offered your talents, we wanted you. So we were taking people from all over the United States and we would come together as a collective group meeting on an everyday basis. But I was in charge of like looking over people's resumes and then from their resumes, analyzing, okay, you have this talent in qualitative analysis, quantitative analysis. This is what uh, committee that we're going to place you in. So then from that, uh, Mother Lab grew into what is now Tufts Center for Black Maternal Health and Reproductive Justice, which is one of its kind. Uh, and currently with that project, um, we had to develop the infrastructure for that. So there were unit lead positions for which I wrote. And those unit lead positions are now occupied by um, my colleagues at Tufts. Uh, who are professors and those um, individuals, I figured out a way to align their level of expertise with that of the needs of students and also what the literature is saying about what the community needs to create a sort of comprehensive response to saying, okay, we know that there is a gap in maternal health, especially when it comes to people of color. How then are we going to be solution-based in responding to that? So with my fascination with infrastructure development and also keeping the most um, most vulnerable communities in mind, I got more so into like, okay, let's build something. But the frustration, but also the opportunity in that was, there was nothing like there, that before. So I really didn't have a blueprint to go off of, but it also gave me free range within the limitations of operating with, um, well, let me not say limitations, but within the guidance of the director uh, to develop a, a solution to the to the problem, essentially, right? Because we hear all the time, you know, about how uh, with Black maternal health, there is racism and as a result of racism and systematic, um, the systematic structure of racism, why that uh exacerbates the disparities among Black women, but now it's like, okay, we have heard this conversation over and over again. What is going to be the solution? Let us 
then go back to the literature to see, okay, what is the outline problem? How are we going to uh, develop solutions? And then how are we going to evaluate those solutions to uh, assess whether or not those solutions are successful? So that's in a nutshell how I got started uh, with Tufts. Um, somewhere along the line, they liked what I did. I transitioned from program manager to um, assistant professor. And then I also started work with the Delta Greens project, uh, which is a, a $6.6 million NIH project uh, where that project solely focuses on nutritional health. So that's a little different than maternal health, but it also had the two projects, they have an underlined uh, focal point on health inequity and the response to that. Yeah, so a love anything that is geared towards solutions because that's really the genesis of our podcast was we don't want to just admire the problem but really discuss and bring on people that are that are solution oriented um so many different places to go though so i'm i, I was like I, this is choose your own adventure for me in terms <laughs> of saying you know go to delta greens or let's focus on um uh, on the maternal health inequity because you have done extensive research and publications in both. But let's start with Delta Greens because I, for me, that's a little unique twist because most people are like food and health equity and what? And so Absolutely. why don't you explain it for us? Well, it goes back to my background. Anything that I do in terms of health, I always keep my background in mind because I feel as though um, there are different levels of training. There's academic training, but then there's also life experience training. And so uh, the Mississippi Delta is obviously in Mississippi and I'm from Mississippi. And so the principal investigator, Christy Konomos uh, at the time, uh, she came to me with a proposal and she was like, you know, do you want to work on this? And I was like, absolutely, let's go for it. And so once I found out more about uh, the initiative of the project, it's a multi- uh, systems level project to where we're basically applying multiple solutions to address the issues that's going on in the Mississippi Delta. So what are those issues in the Mississippi Delta? Historically, the Mississippi Delta um, has been an impoverished community, despite the Delta having some of the nations, not just Mississippi, but some of the nation's richest soil uh, to grow crops and healthy food. The community is not reflective of that. Uh, about 40 to 50 percent of the um, Residents in the Mississippi Delta are obese. Uh, several of them have chronic uh, uh, illnesses. Uh, a lot of them, it's it's very uncommon or it's very common for them to have uh, comorbidities associated with chronic health. And chronic health is important because it's one of the most preventable things that you can really address. So we think to ourselves, or yeah, we think to ourselves, okay, if chronic illness is preventable then why are so many people dealing with this issue being that they have physical access, but then we have to also look at the systematic structure of racism and how that can cause a barrier into the types of, uh, the types of uh, food that they can grow and then who owns the land, right? Because who owns the land gets to determine what can be grown on the land. And unfortunately, uh, we see that a lot of uh, uh, people of color are not able to benefit from the very resource that they have in their own backyard. So um, over, I think, 70. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said literally their own backyard. Yes, literally. And over 77 percent of uh, the state of Mississippi uh, is considered to be a food desert. So uh, say that again. Over 77 percent of the state of Mississippi is, is considered to have food deserts. And can you just 
because we have lay listeners as well as clinical listeners. What's a food desert? So a food desert is basically uh, an area where uh, the uh, people in that community, they lack easy access to a grocery store. Uh, a lot of time in food deserts, you have the availability of gas stations, of uh, fast food restaurants, but we know that those sort of um, areas are not necessarily uh, primarily focused on uh, the best food that brings in the highest level of nutrition. And so when we think about our grandmothers, we think about parents, we think about children, uh, where you know, if they did have a grocery store, they may have better access to nutritional food, but instead, you know, it's more of a presence of gas stations, which of course we know is filled with uh, candy, potato chips, all types of juices, basically um, things that are edible, but not, are not necessarily healthy for us long-term. Got it. Now that's, it, I, you've said that and I'm learning a lot, but 77% of an entire state being a food desert is, sounds, well, it is disturbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. And it has been that way um, for quite some time. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that when it comes to a place like Mississippi, at one point in time, Mississippi, like much of the South, was actually one of the richest uh, areas in the United States, but we know that that was because of slavery. So when slavery ended, uh, we see a reverse. So now Mississippi and also other um, places uh, that are in the southern part of the United States, uh, they are they actually have some of the most impoverished areas uh, of our country. So delve into the Food is Medicine project and tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So uh, the Food is Medicine Project is an initiative that uh, is led by uh, co-PIs Chris Economos, and she is dean of the uh, Friedman uh, Nutrition School here at Tufts, and then also uh, Julian Miller. And he is a supervising attorney of, um, what is Julian attorney of? He he runs uh, the Law Center for Tougaloo, if I'm not mistaken. But basically, he has a law background. So we're looking at so when you look at the positions of the individuals that are on the project, you're also looking at how we are establishing a multi-level, uh, what I would call a cocktail solution. So we have pub, uh, one person who has a public health background, another person who has a law background, right? So we're not just looking at it from the level of oh, we need to promote healthy food, but we're actually looking at. Uh, how do we involve policy? So it's a randomized controlled trial to where we have the Friedman School, we have uh, Tufts School of uh, of Medicine. We're working with people uh, from the Delta Health Center to really see and assess what's going on in the Mississippi Delta, how, not just what is going on, but how are the experiences of the farmers, the uh, the people in the community, uh, uh, college students, what sort of perspective do they have on this issue? Because as we know, one of the best ways to approach an issue is that you have various people of different backgrounds in one room, all looking at the same issue. That way they're applying multiple perspectives as to how to go about establishing a solution that's not just a solution that will last as long as the grant money for that project lasts, <laughs> but really being long-term. Because what we're really doing is we're, a, we're um, a, uh, I would say attacking, even though I know that's a strong word, but essentially what we're doing, we're attacking an issue that has been multi-generational. 
because it's not just that the uh, adults are uh, are suffering from this issue, but now we're starting to see this uh, inequity with nutrition uh, spill over into children, right? And so we have to make sure that we preserve their health because the children are our future. No, it's uh, abundantly clear. And I love the fact that it is, it's a diverse group of people working on a uh, a topic that, and most importantly, it's exactly as you said, I'm not interested in just doing it for the grant, but there are long-term effects that we are, are, are trying to not only rectify, but address downstream um, after all this ends, because any solution that uh, that anybody comes up with needs to to be longitudinal. So that's that's pretty fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so much more to to delve into, but I'm going to give you a break because like I keep like asking you more and more questions, and uh, Jay has decided that that is the, the the modus operandi of this podcast is that even though I say I wanted to be a conversation, I just like start doing pop quizzes on folks. No, it's, um, it's cool. <laughs> So I'm going to give you a second, and we always open up to the Ask Greg section of uh, it. what's on your mind, what's something that you would like to ask uh, me in terms of this. Uh, I've, I've, every question that I've been asked has been super interesting, and that forces me to think, and that's another reason why I do the podcast. <laughs> well, one, one question, and I guess it, it, it's a, a bit general, but with the various people that you have come up on your show. I know that we have different perspectives as to, you know, the work that we do, how we go about, uh, you know, just making the world a be better place in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. But my question is, I know that that's such a buzzword, but I just feel like with this podcast, we talk so much whenever I go to conferences, whenever I go to or teach in the classroom, we talk so much about advocacy uh, spreading the word to the masses. So, you know, with your initiative and what you're doing with, you know, having these multiple people, including myself, come to your podcast, you know, what is your overall goal for this podcast? Well, I mean, ultimately the goal is, I, I, I think there's three goals. Mm -hmm. um, I like threes. Number one, it's simply to educate. I think that there, you know, to your point, diversity, equity, and inclusion gets lumped in together all the time. You're right. It's a buzz phrase. People throw it out there. And for me, one of the, you know, and looking at the tenets, particularly of um, unequal treatment, which is sort of the background of my own philosophy around addressing health um, equity or health inequity, is education just got to be a natural part of it. And mm -hmm. education can't be merely in the classroom, right? I, we've got to have offerings wherever we can to get the general population clued into the fact that diversity, equity, and inclusion means you too. And, you know, and then I think that the second component really is about all of it being solution-driven and oriented. My frustration with a lot of what exists out there in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion is what I call admiring the problem, which I've stolen from an old uh, colleague from a long time ago. But she was right. Like people like to go, oh, wow, that's terrible. Look, maternal health. I mean, it's just so sad. Right, right. And that's the end of the conversation. And what the third component that goes from education and, you know, gets away from education and bringing folks in is really the fact that there are a, there are outstanding people such as yourself that are involved in doing this, but it's also making it, you know, making it very specific and granular. Look, 
I, you know, neither you nor I nor Jay is is going to solve this problem gradually. But if all of us are work, working on our 1% mm-hmm. of making things better, then we are all part of the solution mm-hmm. in terms of that. And I think, um, and I said three, but it's really four. And I think the, the last piece I, I like to bring up is representation does matter and bringing on um, a variety of people from a variety of different backgrounds that, you know, I, if one person listens to this and goes, wow, Dr. Nicholson Robinson's got a really cool trajectory, career trajectory, and she did it, and so can I, we've won. But right. I, I will take that all day long. Um, now, we're, we're only a couple episodes in. I'm, I'm not that ambitious yet. But if we keep doing it, maybe maybe we find somebody one day. So those are my reasons for doing it. I love that. Um, you said so much and I was trying to take down notes, but I didn't want to be rude and like go away and then start typing on my, cause I have like three screens up here, <laughs> but I love where you were talking about, uh, admiring the problem. Uh, because you know, as you both know, like one of my areas, uh, that I work in is maternal health and being a person of color, being a black woman, hearing over and over again, how, you know, this, this buzz phrase. Black women are three to four times more likely to experience uh, maternal mortality compared to their white counterparts. And it's like, okay, I was hearing that back in 2011. It's 2023. What are we going to do about it? So, you know, if people don't get anything out of our podcast today, I think they definitely should, or our podcast conversation today, they definitely should understand that we need more than just, like you said, the admiration of the problem, but okay, what are the solutions? And then how are we going to evaluate the solutions? Because it's not just enough to say, okay, we did a program and this worked. Okay. But what metrics did you have in place to say that this worked, this was successful? Because if we can then create solutions that are successful, we can then replicate those same programs in other areas of the United States. So then that's how you then have the solution being spread to the masses. One, you have the solution where we're talking like we're talking now, and then whoever listens to the podcast can kind of have like a, you know, a a light bulb that comes to their head. But then also do the work. You know, I I, I mean, I'm in the classroom, but I am just as much of a professor as I am an advocate for public health. I truly believe in advocacy. I truly believe in uh, think tanks, uh, coming together or or having a a conundrum of people involved in think tanks coming together to really say, okay, what is feasible, what is successful, and then how can we then implement this for not just now but generations to come? Well, and, and what I most appreciate, so I appreciate the scientific process dramatically, but I think that the advantage of someone such as yourself in taking projects that are in the community and utilizing your like, you know, particularly these days, the frustration of people, oh, well, science is this and science is that. And you live in an academic, you know, uh, ivory tower and you're mm-hmm. not understanding that this is truly like taking the scientific process, engaging the community so that way they understand we're connected, like we're here to serve you. We're not just off doing stuff because we like to write papers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and and then ultimately what we're trying to do is deliver it so that you can live a healthier life and not just you, but you and yours can mm-hmm. live a, a healthy life. And so that's 
that's the piece that um, I appreciate the most and really am trying to communicate. Like there's a lot of that going on. Um, it needs to be amplified uh, mm-hmm. because there, I mean, let's face it, we do have <laughs> academia, whether it's in, you know, the public health space or even in the direct medicine space that is, you know, off, you know, not having practical solutions, but helping to bring those practical solutions um, to the bedside or into the communities to prevent them from ever getting to to my bedside as a hospitalist. So I, I love all of that. Right, right. Yeah. Jay, you're looking like you have bated breath over there, like you're you're waiting to ask a whole bunch of questions. So I, I definitely do have a couple of questions. Um, yeah. They're kind of all over the place. So forgive me if I if I kind of bounce around here. But I guess the first one, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, I used to be a teacher. I used to be more involved with like college students and things like that. But it's it's been a while, so I feel like I'm I'm pretty removed from what um, now. I feel like I'm sound like an older person now, saying the youth, but the it's next right. generation students of um, you know grad students of future doctors, all those. I wonder, I kind of, what's the pulse on on? Do you feel like your students' response to um, your work about just even DEI in general? Because I feel like you know, I think 10, 15 years ago, I I. I feel like things have moved the needle in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. I'm just, I don't have a sense of the pulse of what, you know, 18 to 25 year olds these days, where, where they're at. Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's a good tr- question, Jay. And the reason why I got excited uh, in you asking that question is because I absolutely love to teach. And the reason why I love to teach is because how I teach. So I don't teach in the traditional way to where, you know, my class lasts for three hours and then I'm just consistently reading from a slide. I always tell my students that we're in this classroom, but I'm going to bring the field to the classroom as much as possible. So my uh, classes are definitely um, heavily focused on on, um, application based. So the two classes that I teach at Tufts, uh, one is uh, health program uh, evaluation. And in that course, the students are required to respond to real uh, uh, requests for proposals, come up with uh, a program that they want to investigate, that they want to study, and then actually develop that product. And the reason why I always require like some um, sort of product other than a test for my students is so that uh, when they go out for job interviews and then that job then asks the student, okay, can you give us a writing sample? Can you give us something that demonstrates that you are a critical thinker in your field of expertise? They at least have that. And then that can be supportive of their ongoing uh, profession, not just as a student, because eventually, you know, if they did their job right, they will no longer be a student, but they'll be a, pro- or they will, they'll always be a student, but they won't be my student anymore, but they will actually be a professional in whatever field that they choose. Um, Speaking to uh, the earlier part of your question, like what is the pulse? I would definitely say it's enthusiastic because health equity research is not, although it's a um, newer term, I feel as though the term is more on a lighter, um, more positive, optimistic approach. When I was attending school, for example, it was all focused on health disparities. Right. And when you look at the term health disparity, it's like, oh, look at these people. They're just in such despair. They're just so hopeless. What can you know? They can't do anything like we're just going to tell this ongoing sad story. But now we're like, okay, we have assessed that there is a major uh, gap in healthcare delivery in the United States, which is another course that I teach. Right. And I teach that from uh, uh, what I call a three legged stool, access, cost and quality. So really looking to see, okay, we are. We know that there's an issue, 
What are the solutions that we're going to develop? And then how can we use our expertise? So I have students um, that are law students, that are medical students, that are uh, students that want to be doulas from all various backgrounds. And what I have them do in the class is I have them apply, I, I have them do group work because even then they're getting practice in communicating with their peers, but even their peers are not necessarily sharing the same backgrounds that they have. They're in the same class, but the law students think a different way than the medical students, but then they're having to come together with the um, requirement of whatever in-class activity that, that I have that day. And no one uh, class activity is the same. And then I have my classes set up in a way to where uh, one week is always building off of the week before. So I don't even have to take attendance because they know that if they miss class, then, you know, that's, in, that's an important part of their uh, project that they will miss. And so then they'll have to play catch up, right? Uh, so I think that from my uh, public health evaluation course, as well as from my um, healthcare uh, administration course, it's definitely an optimistic approach. They're ready to go. It's just a matter of where do, where can I find my place and really understanding what's going on. Because, you know, we, you know, in our professions, you know, Greg and his profession in, in medicine, my profession uh, in, in public health, we know what's going on. But they're now saying, okay, teach us what's going on so that we can now then develop solutions, especially, and that's another difference. Technology is nowhere like how it was 10 years ago. So for them to be able to uh, incorporate technology in various ways to address uh, public health issues, that has been tremendously enlightening, even for me. So for example, uh, Mercy, whom uh, Dr. Greg and I both know, uh, she's a student at MIT. And or she was a student in, at MIT, I'm sorry. So she graduated this summer. And what she's doing now with her project, Birth by Us, she's actually uh, in the process of developing a website first, but then she wants to eventually change that into an app so that uh, users can then assess where's the best place for me to have a child. That's never been done before, you know, in terms of an app base specifically uh, focused on uh, the maternal health wellness for Black women. So being able to see how these other um, fields of technology and innovation and how to implement that in health law, health policy, um, behavioral health, that has been uh, a very interesting and, and a very hopeful uh, um, idea and perspective for me to witness and be a part of. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for the answer. Um, I guess there's so much I could ask there, but like I said, I've got a, a lot of questions. I feel like taking a, a sharp left and, and asking a little bit about kind of food deserts. Um, I guess I'm really curious, you know, having lived in or taught in East Somerville and then now living in South LA, I feel like I've seen a lot of more urban food deserts. You mm -hmm. know, I, I would see students when I was a teacher, East Somerville, you know, eating. Um, I remember my students, they love Takis. It would be seven yes. o'clock in the morning and they were they were drinking Mountain Dew and, and having Takis because it was just the, the easiest, fastest thing for a parent to to give to get the student in, into the classroom and have something in their stomach. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious because, I mean, those places are so different than Mississippi. I'm not sure if any of your research, um, have, have you done anything in more urban food deserts or have you had any insights or, or thoughts into those areas? No, because this, this uh, uh, food is medicine initiative with uh, the Friedman School, I'll be honest, this is the first uh, um, 
food initiative that I'm taking on to where I'm applying my uh, expertise and really looking at nutritional justice. So I've not had the opportunity to look, look at urban uh, food deserts, but what I can tell you, being a person, not just from the profession of witnessing um, or being a co-investigator on the Food as Medicine Initiative, but also growing up in Mississippi with some of the issues that those people tend to um, undergo is that there's no transportation. And in a place like Mississippi, there's not an MBTA system like it is uh, in uh, Massachusetts to where you can just walk, you know, to and get on the train and then the train then assists you to where you need to go. If you don't have a car in Mississippi, it's very difficult, right? Because, you know, there may not be a, a grocery store for 10, 15, 20 miles. And, you know, when you think about a parent who has to work and uh, even a situation where only one parent is working uh, in the home because there's only one parent present, you know, they're going to do what's the most con convenient and what's within their capacity, which is, okay, go to the local McDonald's, feed the kids, and then go ahead and go to work. But, um, you know, I don't know if you all have ever heard the phrase, if you build it, they will come, right? So we have to really look and see like, okay, why it, there's an issue. Why is this not being built? And then if it can be built, which it can, then how do we go about in stages talking with uh, the policymakers, talking with the community to see, you know, not just saying, OK, we're going to develop a grocery store, but really having a, uh, a, a focus group or a town hall meeting to say, OK, what do you want to see in your grocery stores? You know, do you want to see what types of vegetables do you want to see? What types of um uh, fruits you want to see, because we know that food is very much intertwined with culture. I got to ask a question because I, I was about to make another pivot and get into the maternal health equity. And I know we've touched on it a bit, but we'll bring it back and we'll get into, <laughs> into okay. that in more, in more detail. Where would you suggest somebody to start to learn about nutritional justice? Because I would say you are the only person I have ever heard put those two words <laughs> together mm -hmm. adjacent to each other. But as I think about it and knowing that food insecurity, food access, food um, cost is simply all, all of those things are directly related to health outcomes and knowing that you know, again, as you stated, we have defined inequities throughout our, our society. Where do, you, where do you tell somebody to say, hey, look, you should, you know, this is a place to start exploring. Who do I read? Is there a book? Is there, you know, what, how do I get more information on it? Well, you definitely, I mean, Google is your best friend. <laughs> uh, so I would definitely say start there and then just really do a peer uh, literature review to say to to actually see okay what is a problem and where is it primarily being um, apparent in uh, the U.S. and then also just start within your own community. I think sometimes when people think of change, they think that they have to have this overwhelming amount of money. They have to think, you know, they think to themselves, I have to have so many resources, and it's just little old me. Start within your community, you know. Have, do an observation to where you're just asking people in your community, okay, you know, how do you feel about the food that you have? What do you feel about the food that you have access to? Have you even thought about it? If you haven't thought about it, why haven't you thought about it? What is your food, you know, what does your food intake look like on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? You know, so start within your community because 
The thing about food deserts, and because remember I talked about access, there are different levels of access. There are some places uh, in the U.S., there are some states where the, the, the issue is just so apparent. And then there are areas to where when you do a comparison, one area is better than the other when it comes to food availability. But there's always inequity present. It's always present. So your job is to really assess your surroundings because when you can assess your surroundings on a smaller level, the more you're able to expand on the larger scale. You know, and when you look at your own internal environment, then you understand your role and your place in it. And you want to start small. I always say start small. Don't start big. You want to start small and you want to start solid because the name of the game is consistency. So you want to start small, look at what is around you, and then whatever you find, then continue to build off of that. Because you want to have the, 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 the aim is to have um, a solid foundation of your assessment of your research rather than having this grand project. If you have a solid foundation, the grand project will come. Got it, got it, and helpful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Google is is my friend in this particular instance, but I'm I'm going to definitely identify a couple books. Mm -hmm. What is next up? What are you next up for you? I think last we spoke, you were getting ready to speak at uh, at a conference. Yes, so I'm going to be speaking at the Massachusetts Hospital Association. Uh, the reason why I got invited is because of that long um, <laughs> report that I did. Uh, so that was, uh, this, it was, um, it's a result of a special commission's uh, committee coming together to address the racial inequities as it related to maternal health, specifically in Massachusetts. So we'll be talking about uh, the importance of what we need to evaluate to assess how our programs are doing, how to improve on our programs as it relates to the overall outcome for maternal health uh, equity, and then just really overall maternal health, period. Uh, because, you know, we get so caught up in, you know, the inequity of maternal health, and that's very important. That's my primary focus. But a lot of people don't understand that there are actually two issues that are going on in America with that. So one, America compared to our peer nations, uh, we are on the low performance scale when it comes to maternal health outcomes. Secondly, within the United States, that's when we have health uh, uh, maternal health inequity uh, by racial group. Uh, so there are actually two issues. And whenever you see something like that, that means that the issue has been going on for a lo long time because the problem is very complex. There is no one solution that is going to resolve everything because systematic or I'm sorry, systemic racism is coming from it's it's been something that has been ingrained in our society for a long time. Uh, when we look at who's providing care, when we're looking at how our systems are uh, are are being delivered, to those who are receptive of those uh, different levels of health care. We have a lot of work to do. We've come a long way, we have, uh, but there is a lot of work to do in terms of pulling apart, assessing the issue. I always say um, systemic racism is sort of like, if you're, if you're ever familiar with jewelry and like you see sometimes how necklaces, they get bum bundled up and chained up. And then it, sometimes it could take hours to like pull it apart. We have some work to do. 
on that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the work cannot be done because whatever can be implemented can be not necessarily, well, well, it can be taken away to uh, establish a new structure. And I also wanted to add this uh, because one of you all had talked about uh, uh, cultural representation. I think it definitely starts there because again, going back to systemic uh, racism, we have to remember, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment did not happen, you know, so long ago. You know, this was a study that went on from 1932 to 1972. So whenever you have a legacy of exploitation on one particular group like that, then when we come in communities saying that we want to help communities, we can't be surprised when the community members have some hesitancy to you know how they respond to us because they are familiar with people coming before saying we want to help you and then it gets exposed that that wasn't necessarily the case so exactly. cultural representation is very important but also with us being culturally representative of the population we're serving we have to always make sure that we're on our craft that we are competent in the work that we do. Because if there's a lack of competency and then those who are receiving our care or receiving our advice, if they notice that, then that can also alter the trust that they have with us. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, the the, the whole idea of, of saying, walking into a community and saying, we're gonna do a randomized controlled trial and somebody pausing, all right, you're about to experiment on me. Right, right. Like mm -hmm. that's a real conversation that has to be had and explored. And I, and while I agree with you that we've come a long way with respect to um, uh, maternal mortality uh, in particular, um, I, I think that I always share with anybody who will listen, the overall, you're right, we have come a long way and the overall rate of mortality has gone down. Unfortunately, while the, particularly for black women, the maternal, the overall rate of mortality has come down there's still the delta between the remainder of the population and black women, as you pointed out earlier, is still three to four times higher. So the overall rates come down. We've made huge improvements. There's still a gap. And what you're talking about in terms of unraveling the, the necklace is to figure out like, so we've done all this wonderful stuff. Why is there still the three to four times greater in this country? And that's right. the part that you have to underscore It's it just happens here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's something we have to call out and 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 work through. So well, um, I could go on for days, uh, and I do have uh, dozens more questions, and I feel um like I have totally undersold all the work that you've done because you have done such a fabulous report on maternal health equity. We're just gonna have to bring you back. I got uh, you. <laughs> as a guest <laughs> to talk to us, um, because this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, before we let you go, though, um, it, we, uh, as I promised, what subjects would you like uh, for us to address, or is there somebody that you think we should talk to um, and bring onto the podcast? Uh, I have my colleague and friend in mine, uh, Dr. Thomas Hampton. He uh, is a physical therapist by training, and I think that he would really be good for uh, you all to talk to in terms, and he's actually uh, located in Houston. So he would be really good to talk to uh, because when I think of public health and medicine, uh, as you know, Dr. Greg, sometimes there has been a little bit of friction between the two professions. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but at the same time, I honestly believe that for us to approach a lot of the issues that are 
faced by public health and medicine, it requires us to work together. I always look at medicine and public health as sort of a marriage, right? And they both, you know, to a degree, they depend on each other. But I would definitely like to see what he has to say in terms of, you know, diversity, inclusion from the physical therapist perspective. So he would be, um, I think he'd be a good uh, addition to your show. That's great. Well, uh, we will follow up and ask you if you can help us get him on. So uh, we're we're already working on getting people scheduled. Awesome. Well, uh, Vanessa, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and your perspective. Thank you for your outstanding work uh, in terms of this. And um, we will absolutely work to get you back on for uh, our next season. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to, before I go, because I want to make sure that I do write by my colleague. Uh, So I mentioned a Dr. Miller, I'm sorry, Julian Miller earlier when it came to the Delta Greens project. He's a co-PI on the project. But his official title outside of that, he is the current director of the Ruben B. Anderson pre-law program uh, at Tougaloo College. Perfect. Yes. Let's make sure that we get that down too. That's fantastic. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.